What did Boy George reveal about his battle with heroin in an exclusive interview? Inquiring minds want to know. I want to know. Will Jenna's bombshell affect Bobby and Pam's wedding? This week's National Enquirer tells you. How can you have a stronger marriage? Can this new diet help save your life? It's in the Enquirer. What makes Dynasty season opener the hottest ever? See exclusive photos in the Enquirer. Over 100 features for people with inquiring minds. Like me. How much do you know about what you don't know? It's sometimes amazing that we can actually get through our day knowing as little as we do. Now, of course, there's a bell curve there, but even those of us who feel like we might know, you know, a thing or two, well, there's so much we actually don't understand. You can experience this firsthand, and it's usually when a child asks you to explain something that, at its surface, should be really easy to explain. Or when you see that political post emerge on your Facebook or Twitter feed, you start out in that, okay, let me sit you down and explain this to you kind of tone, and then realize quickly, you've got no idea how this thing actually works. For example, tell me how a zipper works. Or, how does a manual can opener actually work? Can you explain it? If you ask what kind of can opener, by the way, well, good on you because there are different mechanisms for even the basic kind of manual gear-driven can opener. Or what's the definition of the word the? Why do we say I love the ballet, but we don't say I love the cable TV? Or how about how tides work? Yeah, it's something about the moon or pulling the water toward it, but then why are there high tides on the other side of the planet at the same time? Fun fact, the earth is actually getting pulled as well. Or, here's a fun one, draw how a bicycle works. On the paper, just draw it out. This last one they actually studied. In 2006, participants in a study in the UK were asked to draw pictures of a bicycle. What they found was that about 40% of participants simply couldn't do it. They drew the pedals coming out from the hub of the front tire, wrong. The chain connecting the front wheel and the back wheel, wrong. They had gears on the front tire, wrong. And the funny thing is... When we discover that we can't actually explain this thing we thought was going to be so simple, we've got a tendency to blame it on memory. We say, right, I used to know that, but now I don't. And the thing is, you probably never did. You just assumed you did. All of this summed up is basically that we're often overconfident about our depth of knowledge of something. We believe we understand everyday things more than we actually do. And scientists have a name for it. They call this the illusion of explanatory depth. And it tricks our brains into thinking we know more than we actually do. This is something that in today's world, with the rapid proliferation of technology in our marketing, of new approaches, of channels, of content, of so much changing that we see every day in our business, marketers who think they know how things work, but then when asked to explain how they work, well, we really just can't explain it. Just the other day, my wife asked me to explain how targeted advertising works, and I started in and just stumbled around for a bit trying to explain it, and she finally said, yeah, I don't need to know that badly. This is something we need to practice. Being able to explain what we do is important, not just for our significant others, but for our bosses, the colleagues, even our customers, even us. Simplifying our language and making things really clear is important. And that's the theme of our show today. Knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know and knowing that what you don't know is an important thing to get to know, you know? And I know it's now time for me to end this introduction and get on with our little hour of knowledge. You ready to know a little bit more than you knew a minute ago? Well, then let's roll.
And now for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PR with this old marketing. Take it away, boys. Hello, content marketers. This is Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 174 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded Monday, March 13th, 2017. And with me, as always, is my co-host, my colleague, my friend, and the guy who knows who knows how to know everything about content marketing, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you, my friend? You know, here's what I know. I, I know... What do you know? I know that... Do you know what you don't know? Well... That I don't know, but here's what I do know. <laughs> what I do know is that you know? everyone is freaking out right now over this major storm that's coming in. And I know uh, it's supposed to be like a big one, like two feet of snow or something. Well, I, that's where my our friends in New York are scrambling and buying bottled water and sandbags, which I don't know what you do with a sandbag. But anyways, they're buying stuff that you don't need at grocery stores because they feel like they have to. And uh, wow. all because of this big, what is it called? Stella? Stella! No, it's, is it it's, really called Stella? I think it's uh, Blizzard uh, Winter Storm Stella. Blizzard. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that part. <laughs> that's, that's really great. Just, that's really, as the blizzard's coming down the 50 mile an hour winds, we're just going to go out into the streets and scream, Stella. <laughs> there it is. That's all we, some oh, of the yeah. kids won't but get you're not that gonna, joke. You're not going to feel. Well, you're not. Gonna, you're not going to feel any of it because. You know, you no, I'm in Southern California, where it is. Yeah, it is. It is 85 degrees today, and clear blue skies. Nice. And um, yeah, I made my first tequila gimlet last night with the uh, extra hour of of daylight and out at the barbecue. And yeah, it's 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 summertime in Cali. It's uh yeah, welcome back. <laughs> this is why I live in this beautiful state, my friend. Yeah. Uh, 75% of our audience is very happy for you. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure snicker. the other 25% yeah. are cursing at yeah, me right exactly. now. They're like, "What?" <laughs> Although I can't complain. I mean, here I mean, we're 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 going to get they're saying 6 to 8 inches of snow, which really is nothing. That's a dusting for Cleveland, Ohio. So, no That's right. concerned. But apparently it's going to fly over northeast Ohio and land on the northeast. Yeah, pretty badly. So, yeah, I, there was my Facebook feed was filled with people who are traveling for business and really worried quite a lot about it. Actually, going to Boston or Maine or some of the you know upper parts of Massachusetts, et cetera. Well, we have associates right now that are stranded in Texas because they can't get out of uh, South by Southwest. They're oh wow! Big, I didn't even I hadn't even thought canceled. about that. As we record this, just so everybody knows, this is Monday at four o'clock Eastern time. And uh, that's right. And yes, they've already canceled all the flights coming into New York. Wow! And t- today and tomorrow, they're all canceled. Okay. So yeah. Well, they'll have nothing to do but listen to PNR. That's so it. Yeah, plenty of time to catch up us. with with wonderful with wonderful <laughs> your, news. Your favorite so. podcast. Yeah. Do we? Uh, did we have? Did we have any news? We this did. Week to, to talk uh, to. We did have to some news. Of? Yeah. Yes. 
Let's see. Our first uh, story um, uh, for the show comes to us courtesy of Digiday.com. And this one was an interesting one. The headline here, and the reason we chose it to top the show, obviously, is that publishers are facing content studio growing pains. Big hat tip, by the way, here to listener Scott Gilbert, who sent this over via the Twitter hashtag. So hi, Scott, and thank you, Scott. Um, And the article opens up by saying, two years ago, the New Republic did, like many publishers before it, and built an agency-style unit to sell big, lofty, content-based campaigns to marketers. The publisher was determined to avoid the missteps of other publishers that struggle to make branded content profitable. There were some wins. It signed Casper, Getty Images, and IBM. But the small agency quickly became strained by the demands of the work. One quarter, a credit card brand would want food-driven events attended by celebrity chefs and an influential crowd, while the next quarter it wanted a campaign targeting small businesses, said Kayvon Salmanpour, who was brought on to build the New Republic's agency called Novel. There was the pressure to uh, deliver while staying on top of whatever new social platform initiative was coming out. Less than a year in, the experiment ended when owner Chris Hughes sold the magazine and the studio was spun off. I have definite thoughts about this because the article then goes on to talk about how (laughs) it's a different profitability model here. Um, But uh, what did you what did you think about this? Well, yeah, the first off, publishers hate this model. There, I've never met a media company executive that actually likes doing creative content marketing programs for their clients. Is that true? What they want. Is that true? It, yeah, oh, absolutely true. You know what they want to do? They want to sell big what? ad programs that, that okay, have well, very well. high margin and very little work. Yes. That's what they want to do. They want to be fed the creative from an agency or, or directly, place it, and cash the check. Nobody wants to do a a multi-tiered program content program and but so that's that's stage one if you will or or my answer one i think the second part of this is and what's interesting is in the first part of this article they talk about all the different campaigns that the new republic was doing and different things here's the thing you don't want to no publishing agency wants to be a full service agency or should be a full service agency you have to choose that's what the whole strategy is about. You actually have to choose what you are going to do and aren't going to do. And what a lot of publishing agencies, content agencies within a publishing environment have done is they started to say yes to everything. Oh, well, we could do that campaign. We could do that uh, experiential event for you. We can integrate this creative that we've never done before, but we'll give it a shot. And that's not what they're good at. What they're really good at is telling editorially based stories. So that's what you need to focus on, and I think that's where a lot of these publishers lost their way, where they just wanted to, oh, hey, we need to get any kind of revenue we can, and they sort of lost their way. So that that's my first two takes out of this. I don't know what your, yeah. your take was. Well, I'm going to disagree a little bit, um, Okay, and, and it's only slightly with what you said, which is I absolutely think there is – I think one of the reasons that – I see the struggle there. So I come from the other side, right? I come from the agency world um, and the brand side, which is to say I think one of the reasons that they're struggling with this um, is that they didn't go far enough. In other words, what I hear so often from these content companies that are producing content is, uh, you know, they lament that they're, uh, we're not strategic, right? We're not, we're just on demand vending machines of content for these brands who very much like in the lead of this story said, basically one quarter it's, you know, they want food driven recipes. And then the next quarter they want small business expertise and they just want content, 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 content. And 
Of course, we've railed against that, you know, ad nauseum at this point for brands and getting more strategic about the owned media that they're doing and building something of value and building an audience, et cetera. And what I haven't seen the content, with exceptions, of course, what I haven't seen the content companies doing is getting strategic. In other words, actually saying to a brand, look, we'd love to give you those 14 blog posts per month on recipes and then next month give you 22 blog posts on small business, but that's not how we work. We need to get strategic with you and talk to you about your goals and needs for content more broadly and what we're going to build because our expertise is helping you build an audience. Now, we can offer strategy with that. We can offer promotional capabilities. We can offer content creation capabilities. We, that's their expertise as a publisher and media company. So they're actually only offering one aspect of their expertise, which is the production of content as the service. And no wonder it's the lowest margin uh, portion of those services. And so one way to increase the margin would be to, one, get more strategic and offer strategy as a service. Two, that would enable higher margin and scalability to come into play when it comes to actually producing the content. And three, by offering strategic measurement on the backside of it, they would actually become more sticky and thus more strategic as an advisor to those clients and thus need fewer clients to actually make the model work. And so it's it's really just the same problem that brand marketers have had that these content producing content studios are having, which is they're not going far enough. They're actually trying to just supplement their advertising uh, dollars with production and custom production of assets, which of course is just a commoditized content factory business, and no wonder the margins are so low. So guess what? Welcome to the agency business. This is something that agencies struggle with all the time, is figuring out the margins on the different services they offer, and what most of them figure out is that we have to get strategic if we're going to maintain that 65% plus service margin on our business. That's what I think. No, I actually no, I love what you're saying. And I don't think what we're what I'm saying is too far away from that because oh, I don't think so either. I, a, I'm I'm only no. disagreeing slightly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there I guess there's a, an additional take that I want I want to get let's just look at strategy for example. If if there's a large brand that goes to a content marketing division within a publisher and they say here's the things that I would like to have done, you're exactly right. There's no pushback in my experience. They just say, "Oh, they want five blog posts a month and they want this and they right. want this video. Okay, let's go price it and give it to them. And I know a lot of agencies that do that as well, right? They, they just, oh, sure. They, this is not, yeah, this yeah, is not this unique. This is exactly <laughs> what they do. This is not unique to publishing agencies. What I'm talking about is, and I, I very specifically had a conversation with somebody that worked in a publishing agency. This happened about a year ago. And we were talking about all the different things that you could offer. You could offer article-based content. You could do videos. You could do podcasts. You could do experiential events. You know, you could do all those things. And this gentleman was saying, well, I don't know if, if we should do all those things. I said, well, you shouldn't. You shouldn't do all those yeah, right, things. Exactly. You don't have exactly. expertise in all these things. It's like, what can you deliver to your clients that you could do better than anyone else? Think about that. Right. That's what I'm ta- talking about when it comes to strategy, where a lot of these publishing agencies just have just said, you know, oh, let's just take off the kimono and we'll just offer everything we possibly can because we're agencies now and we have to do it. That's where I think it's wrong, where I think that, like, if you look at what the New York Times is doing, they're very specifically doing just a certain number of publishing activities for their clients. They're not doing everything like they're not they're not doing let's say road shows around the world 
with some of, maybe they are, I don't know. I'm just throwing that out. Um, but they're, they're, I haven't seen them do anything. They're doing very specific things in content created activities and they're doing some, some of that stuff in, in VR and they're, they're doing long form journalism, but they're not doing, let's say uh, 20 blog posts a month for their customers. So that, so they're choosing what they can be really good at and what they can do better than the competition. I think that's right. And I think that's, so I think ultimately we're both saying the same thing, which is, you know, so one, you know, guess what? This is new. And so, yes, there are going to be publishers who struggle with this, like, you know, like marketers are struggling with content marketing and like agencies are struggling with content and, and, you know, all of the rest of it. This is all new uncharted territory for many of these businesses. And as we've talked about many times on this show, this is a talent challenge, not a, you know, really not sort of a permission of what we should be doing or what we're able to do kind of uh, challenge. Because quite frankly, there is very little difference in what we've talked about a million times. There is very little, if no difference, between the business model of a product and brand these days and a media company and an agency. It is that direct relationship and access to audiences that you have an expertise in delivering that. And that ultimately is what drives your revenue, wherever it is, right? And it also is what has to escalate in the terms of cost. And that's the magic. That's what we're trying to do is balance out how much it's going to cost us to do this wonderful thing of reach this audience versus what's the benefit of actually doing it. And I think you're going to start to see some of these publishers and media companies get really good at this, not the least of which we've, you know, we've talked about with, um, you know, with the, the T-Brand Studios and, and some of the other content-oriented uh, studios. And some of them won't be able to do this. And quite frankly, some of them will be able to do this, but only for a very small piece of their business. Yep. And it, you know, and it bears mentioning that T-Brand Studios is now, I think the last number I saw was going to be 25% of their digital ad revenue was going to come from the T-Brand Studios work. So that's a very small, right now, anyway, it's a very small percentage of a percentage, right? So it's a, you know, so it, it very much may be like the e-commerce efforts of many retailers where they find e-commerce is really just about three to 5% of their revenue. But they need to be good at it because, quite frankly, their customers expect them to be there. It's a valuable and it's higher margins and they can do all those wonderful things. But it's just an additional component of their integrated you know, business. And that's that's the way to, to look at this and, and, and to say that, oh, there's a few that are struggling with margins and therefore the whole model is broken is just as it's just as guilty of saying content marketing is broken because we don't know how to do it very well. I I guess the one the. For, I, I I do agree with you. I guess the one thing that I would say is I get concerned when a media company says, okay, well, we're moving away from the advertising model because we're not selling that like we used to and nobody wants to buy banners. And then we're going to move over to this thing called native advertising and sponsored content. And I think that's just moving the devil to the other side of the room. In a lot of cases, I think that really what, what they should be doing is saying, look, we're going to diversify our platform. We know how to build audiences. We have an audience. We're going to diversify um, native advertising, sponsored content, selling creative services. That's a great way to do it. But still, I, I really believe, and we talk about this in the new book coming up, where if they're really going to survive, they need to do more than just creative services and advertising. They probably need to sell 
products, other services, uh, five, six, seven different ways to monetize that audience and not just through creative services where I think that in a lot of cases, like you said before, the production of content, it's very hard to differentiate yourself in when, when everybody's now creating content. So, yeah. okay, well, what do you do? If you're going to do it, find out what you can do better than anyone else, and then you can charge a lot more money for that instead of just this race to the bottom, which a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of publishing agencies are doing because they're, they have a lot of freelancers that are creating a lot of different content, and they're just, they're just cranking out this whole content factory mentality, and that is a short-term solution. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. I have no disagreement with that. I think that's exactly right. You know, it is, you know, it is a considered approach. Everything we do here should be a considered (laughs) approach and, and, and not jumped into with no forethought. All right. Shall we move on? Yeah. Let's go on to the next uh, next thought as it were. Um, All right. So this next story here comes to us. Uh, courtesy of a site called MinOnline.com. Um, and the headline here is Teens and Tweens uh, are a print-hungry audience. Article opens up by saying Bauer Media Group has made no secrets about its love of print magazines. Evidence of that is continued commitment to the newsstand and its aggressive strategy to keep launching new magazines. Over the past few years, the company has been more than bullish about introducing new titles, which has worked out pretty well for them. Brands like Closer and Simple Grace, for example, have thrived on newsstands and gained recognition among industry pundits. But last year, the company targeted an audience that some might think wouldn't be all that interested in old school mediums like print female teens and tweens. The article then goes on to describe how it's launched. uh, The company has launched a bunch of new products, uh, print oriented for young people and how young people are eating up this idea of print media. What say you, Mr. Print Media Magician, Mr. (laughs) Joe Polizzi? What do you think? Yeah. The old, all that. Yeah. The only thing I would say, this is, and I'm going to make like I normally do. I make it personal, but when you have, (laughs) when you have teenagers that, love being online and they love having their phones and they love being on YouTube or Snapchat or whatever they're doing. As a parent, you are looking for opportunities to get print books and magazines in front of them because you have, they basically have to, you have to say it. And a lot of times during the day, okay, you're done. You can't be on anymore. You're not going to be on all Saturday or Sunday or whatever the case is. And so we, we go to the library a lot. Uh, we, and we have subscriptions to Sports Illustrated and other magazines, and we've got you know there's they're with they have books with them at all times. And I think what's interesting about this generation is it's the this this last ten years or so is the first generation of kids that have been pushed like purposely pushed into print. And I think what yeah. we're creating is that's interesting. Yeah, so I think that's where the opportunity is, where you're going to have the teens and tweens of today in the next ten years. They're going to have an appreciation for print because they're most of the teenagers that I know, they're lo- they love print. They love magazines. I mean, I I never read print books as much as my son and his friends do. And huh, it's, that's interesting. It, it, it's amazingly interesting. I mean, I'm getting really good book recommendations from them because in their free time, they are being pushed into – you know, reading books and reading magazines and and even there, you know, there's oohs and ahs over newspapers. 
Because it's it's that in a, I don't know if it's the tactile feeling or because it's different or because you know parents were doing our job to push them in that direction. So that's what I took from this article, Robert. Was and I don't know what that means except for I think there is an opportunity for brands that are targeting the younger generation because I think they will have an appreciation for print because the parents are forcing them to engage in it right now uh, when maybe they don't have to. I think that, well, that's a good point. And I don't have kids, but I have seen this um, certainly with my my nieces um, as they've grown up and, and sort of that print is still a wonderful sort of medium for them. And it's how many of, you know, like I asked my nieces, you know, how do you consume a novel or, or those kinds of, or a magazine? And they both love magazines and books to read and and don't really appreciate that much, you know, consuming content on a Kindle, et cetera, et cetera. Now, this is now this is also coming from two young people who, you know, consume really no broadcast television, right? Everything they yeah. do is either through YouTube or Netflix, et cetera, et cetera. So they've evolved very, very quickly into new media um, and the consumption of such, um, you know, and would rather actually spend all evening watching YouTube videos than they would television, which is an interesting trend all of in its own. But then they want to read a magazine or they want to read a book and they want to read an actual physical book. And I think this is a really, you know, as we start looking at marketing, um, you know, the, the, the focus becomes so myopic on digital and how do we digitize and how do we make everything digital and digital and digital and digital. And, and there is a real, whether it's teens or tweens or, you know, people like you and I that are, that are being targeted uh, and or are doing the targeting, there's a real value in, you know, in, in looking at print as a differentiating medium these days. And so I think, you know, this study notwithstanding, I think, you know, for it's like it's seemingly I have this conversation with every marketing team that I'm going in and talking with on an advisor. It's like, what do you think of print? And I'm like, I love print if it's done the right way, if yeah. you, you know. Sticking more marketing collateral into bill stuffers is not print done the right way, but figuring out a really cool, interesting magazine or print piece, you know, we talked about this in this show not too long ago with when Seth Godin did that giant oversized book, right? Which was, you know, he only did like a thousand copies of it, but it was immensely successful even just for the PR that it generated. And so That's I think right. there's a real opportunity here. And I think it, it's, it's nice to see research like this where, you know, that, that we see young people sort of, you know, leaning towards something that would be considered an old medium. Well, I, I still remember when the boys were, you know, seven, eight, nine, and Lego Club magazine would come in the mail and they would run and get excited. And then they would both together, they would lay on the floor and read it together, ooing and eyeing and seeing what the kids had made and reading the articles and reading the comics. I mean, I re that is a vivid memory. And I still tell that story. I still tell that story in, in one of my keynotes. Because when you told me that story, it, it it stuck with me so strongly that it, that story is, is, has stayed. I mean, isn't there? I love Yeah, and it's like the greatest marketing ever. And just to show you, I mean, I, I can't even walk through the boys' room anymore without stepping on a Lego. Still today. <laughs> they're still into Legos, by the way, and they're 13 and 15. So, I mean, it's right. it's incredible that that, that has that kind of staying power. And I think sometimes because we just assume that, oh, young people are watching YouTube all the time. They've got smartphones with them. We forget that there is a different 
different opportunity to reach them. And, uh, you know, if there's an example right in front of you and that's, it's Lego and they've been, and they still do it, by the way, still Lego, yeah. Lego club magazine is still being produced. And, uh, and I would imagine they probably would never stop. And they've been doing it since 1987 when it was called brick kicks yep. and I received it. And, uh, and here it is, uh, all, what is that? 30, 30 years. That's 30 My years. Goodness. Yeah. That's sad. Yeah. <laughs> it's sad. And and the reason I know that is because 1987 is when I moved out to Los Angeles and got into, well, I was into lots of trouble, but, but beyond the trouble I was getting into, I was getting into marketing. So yeah, now I'm 30 years in marketing. That's a sad state of affairs. If there ever is one, it's a, it's a age is a state of mind. My friend, there you go. Thank you for you're, that. You're I appreciate that. I appreciate you're as young that. as you my, think you my, are. My, <laughs> my 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 personal trainer at the gym would probably disagree with that. Hold <laughs> the old man. Anyway, moving on to All the right. last story of our show here that we're going to cover, at least in this show. This one comes to us courtesy of Convince and Convert, our friends over there, Jay Bear and his merry band of misfits. And the headline here is "Video is the new blogging." Um, this one written by Jay himself, and as the article opens up, it says, As an author, it breaks my heart, but we are entering the no-read era. Every year, I think there is no possible way online video consumption can climb again, but it does. And finally, content marketers are catching up to the consumption trend. Video for content marketing used to be something, a thing, uh, a sometimes thing, he says, an occasional deviation from tried and true blog posts. But now, for many companies, Jay says, video is the new blogging. New research from Vidyard, uh, a great partner of Convince and Convert, called the 2017 Video in Business Benchmark Report, um, put the math around this. This shift. They then go on to describe that shift. And uh, what do you say, Mr. Polizzi? Is it a shift or something else? Well, I mean, we just talked about. Yes, <laughs> yes, video is big. Yes. Yeah, I think- there is an architecture to this. So the the the, the, the stories sort of flow together here. Yes, yes. are people yes. watching more video? Yes, yeah, sure they are. But is the written word done? Absolutely not. There were more books published last year than any other year on record. So I mean. So, so don't think that uh, we're everybody's just going to video because we just talked about people that you know the kids are still reading magazines and doing right. Stuff. There's a couple of stats that, by the way, there, I don't have anything inherently wrong with this article, but I do want to pick apart two stats from this that I think that marketers can get into a rut with. The first one is the stat is 18 videos are pub- videos are produced and published by businesses every month. That's one. And the yep. second one is 56% of videos are less than two minutes. I think that we are giving in to this idea of, oh, we just need video. We need more video. We need more stuff. <laughs> right. And, of course, nobody has any patience anymore and, and nobody wants to engage in anything for a long period of time, which is totally not true. So they make their videos really, really short. Um, well, when everyone zigs, you zag, you know, go into a different, I think that that long form, if you're going to do video, long form video is absolutely something to look at and just look at any of the YouTube creators. When you really go and look at the YouTube creators, you know what they do? They do 15 to 25 to 30 minute shows that do really, really well. So, I mean, there's one thing that you can look at. And the other thing is if you're publishing 18 videos per month, I can guarantee that most of it is really bad. 
because you're because right. <laughs> you can't you, you're not focusing on series and that's what works and that's why the youtubers are successful because they focus on series they have creators doing really amazing work it's on a specific topic a specific tilt if you will and they're doing some really good influential stuff and they're not just putting out video so that's where i, I just i want to make sure right. that marketers don't think oh we just need more video no you don't Yeah, I didn't read the actual study, but if I'm hearing what you're saying, um, what I what 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 it what it seems to me to be saying, tell me if I'm if I'm correct here. When you say something like fifty six percent of business videos created in the past year were two minutes or shorter, and then you go down to say the top five percent of videos get seventy seven percent of the views, well, we need to know the cross tabs of those two numbers, right? In other words. Yes, 56% of all business videos were two minutes or shorter, but where, how long were the successful ones? You know, that 5% that were really successful, in other words, get 77% of the views, how long were those videos? If those videos indeed, so 56% of business videos created in the past year were two minutes or shorter, just means that we create a lot of videos that are two minutes or shorter. Yeah. And so, but then when we look and say the top 5% of videos get 77% of the views, well, how long were they? If those were nine minutes or 10 minutes or longer, then we go, oh, well, then we need to understand that the real drive here is for longer videos. Now, I don't know if I, I didn't read, as I said, the, the research to know if it goes into that level of depth, but the cross tabs here would seem to be relatively important in understanding where quality is versus quantity, right? So yes, it's important to produce video. Yes, it's important to produce good video. But in terms of when we look at length, just because we're producing a lot of short videos doesn't mean that that's the right strategy. Yeah, right? It, it's hard. Yeah, I mean, I think we, to be fair, we probably need to go deep into the research and see what the heck is going right, on. But if course. you if you just yeah, say, yeah. just take that video. I mean, this week, uh, what was the video that got a hundred million views? The guy that was doing the interview yeah, on the, the BBC, on BBC, yeah, on the and BBC the kids thing, were yeah. in the background. And I, and as I was looking at, at the Facebook feed, of course, there's so many other. Uh, people that took that video and put words around it, whatever. Everyone that I saw had like 20 million views. So it's yeah, like this oh, it, thing it is... went completely viral. Oh, it went absolutely... My... Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, what was that video? It was, a two, it was about a minute and a half or something, right? It was whatever. But that that's... I don't think this is what we're talking about. If we're talking about really trying to build a loyal relationship and build an audience, you've got to take all those out. And just say those are flukes. Those things just you, you can't build a strategy right. around that. That's just stuff that <laughs> exactly. happens. Right. You can't. That's like building a strategy around <laughs> right. cat videos. You, you just yes. you just simply can't <laughs> do it. It's not going to work. Although it's so. fun to try. I, it's, you know, oh. it's fun to try to actually build a strategy around cat videos. Well, I mean, the fact that BuzzFeed uh, has a has an e newsletter called Do Today, and every day you get some. You know, I've, I've been told this. Some hot guy uh-huh. will say, yeah, <laughs> say, yeah. say something yeah. nice to you or whatever. That's great. They could do that. Uh, if your brand could uh, could fit that kind of model, fantastic. Most of ours, that's not the stories we should be telling. So, That's right. That's right. And just for the record, Joe Polizzi subscribes to Do Today. Just for you. <laughs> I probably <laughs> led to a lot of subscribers because I talk about it in a lot of my speeches. So, That's right. Oh, hey, speaking of Do Today, um, dude, dude, we have today a wonderful sponsor to talk about, one of our favorite sponsors of all time. Well, of, of course. And this is uh, one of the last ones we'll do for a while. 
on our Content Marketing Institute events. So we got to make sure you're very much aware of what's going on. First of all, at the end of March, our Content Marketing Institute training is ending. Our spring semester will be over. So if you actually want to get access to Content Marketing University, you have to do this before March. And of course, since we love you so much, we have a $100 discount. Go use PNR100. It's PNR100 to get $100 off and go to contentmarketinguniversity.com so that you can absolutely use that. So that's the one thing. The first thing is training. The second one is we're coming up to the close of Content Marketing Awards and they're coming in fast and furious right now. Um, so if you don't have your awards in yet, make sure you do. I think the deadline is sometime in, in mid to late April. Uh, so you don't have a lot of time to get that going. Make sure you get that in. We had over 1,200 entries uh, last wow. year. We'll probably get more. We've got 91 different categories. Uh, I have a really good feeling if you do a good job on your submission, you can win an award. This will be good for you. You should do this, and you should get your stuff recognized. <laughs> or if you're an agency, recognize your client stuff. So go to contentmarketingawards.com and get that. And then the two other events we have going on, March 28th to 30th, 2017, of course, is Intelligent Content Conference. We're super excited about it. Only a couple weeks to go for that. Still time to sign up. Make sure you go to intelligentcontentconference.com and sign up there. I think that's a, P, it's a PNR 100 code as well for $100 off for that one. And then Content Marketing World, just so you know, uh, September 5th through 8th, 2017, Cleveland, Ohio. We're expecting over 4,000 again. Last year, I think we had 75 countries represented. Uh, so we are super excited about that. So we would like you involved in all of these things. Um, so depending on what your needs are and what's going on, whether it's training or whether it's the awards or whether it's ICC, which is really about content strategy for marketing professionals and then content marketing world, which is, is basically the annual holiday for our little industry. So nice. We want to see I you there. We look at it there that way go. these days. Yeah, I absolutely love that we look at it like a little holiday. It's because it, it really is now. It's a week long. It's a jubilee, really, more than anything. Oh, else. I like we that. Just, it is a. It's an we orange. Start calling it it's content an orange marketing jubilee. jubilee. It's a, yeah, yeah, the orange jubilee. It's there you go. Orangely. How about that? Something. How about that? All right. Well, thank you for that. Um, <laughs> now it's time for your favorite part of the show, ladies and gentlemen. It is our rants and rave section when Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave over something that has made us feel like we know everything and can settle down or that we don't know what the hell is going on and we actually need to get up and rage quit. And so um, let's see. I have, uh, I have this old marketing, so I'm going first. Um, you are so he, yes. So here is I have a very 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 quick rave, and then I have, you know, I, I don't want to be the angry guy, but I have a I have a bit of a strong rant um, on something. Um, and so the first, let me just do my rave and get it out of the way. Um, the I just want to rave about Chad Pollitt and the Native Advertising Institute and their. He just released a new post. Um, and research around the native advertising technology landscape. And it's just fantastic. It's just really well done. I know how much work goes into doing those things. Um, and I just want to give a big hat tip to them for all the work they're doing there. We'll put a link in the show notes, of course, um, to to the native. So if you're interested in native te- advertising and the technology that drives it, it's just a great post, great resource, um, and just wanted to give a shout out to it because it's just awesome. Um, okay, so now <laughs> for the rant. 
So it's that time of month, it seems, um, when somebody needs to write an article about how content marketing is doesn't exist, um, apparently. And so I would hat tip a lot of people who, uh, you know, thank you, by the way, all the wonderful listeners out there that forwarded this over because it was like an onslaught this morning in my email inbox and on my Twitter feed saying, hey, look, another one um, that but uh, a few people sent this over. So this actually what we'll link to in the show notes is an article off of the dot com. And again, I don't know what's going on in the UK, but it's something in the water in the UK that they just really dislike content marketing for some <laughs> reason. And so um, here we go. Apples are not oranges and content marketing means nothing, says the author of this uh, post. And this is honestly, you know, I'm going to try and keep this as, you know, this one just, you know, as Joe said, these, you know, these can tend to exhaust you after you've read so many of them, whether just, you know, you just go, oh, great. They followed the recipe, right? You know, mystifying content marketing and then proceed to poop all over it. Um, this I, It starts out, and by the way, this is what happens when a journalist starts to lecture me on marketing, which is okay. You know, I don't try and anyway, I'm going to get off on another <laughs> rant there. But here's the thing. So he starts out by talking about the fact that thousands of marketers are going to come to intelligent content this year, which I was actually pretty happy about. I don't know about you when you saw that in the article. Um, so it's like, great, thousands of marketers are coming to intelligent content. He knows something I don't know. But anyway, he also mentions another conference in there um, that and he says, you know, you know, really, what are they? Why are they going? What are they actually talking about? Um, and he starts out by saying that as a journalist, they, you know, he used to argue over words like he uses the word collision. And we used to argue over what the meaning of the word collision would mean and, and then stops in the middle of that and never settles the argument. And I went and looked at the definition of collision and it means exactly what he thought it meant. So it's like it starts off on a very weird note. But anyway, he opens up by quoting Philip Kotler, which of course gets my attention because I'm a marketing geek and I love Kotler and I've got my dog-eared, you know, version of many of his books, um, but certainly marketing, the textbook on marketing um, sits and I've gotten every edition that's come out. And he quotes it by saying, he says, then a this is a quote from Kotler's marketing, then a company's total promotion mix, also called its marketing communications mix, consists of the specific blend of advertising, public relations, personal selling, sales promotion, and direct marketing tools that the company uses to persuasively communicate customer value and build customer relationships. And he uses that quote to then say, in the end, then marketing communications and content marketing are merely the creation and transmission of marketing collateral over channels. Well, that's so wrong that there's not there's that's a, that's a misdefinition. But here's that didn't even bother me, right? The fact that he got that completely wrong. What bothered me was if he just actually decided to quote a little further in Kotler's book. Yeah, don't bring up Kotler because I've got I've got my dog-eared copy right here. So you read a little further, and what Kotler says at the same time. Marketing communications goes beyond these specific promotional tools. The product's design, the shape, the color, the stories, they all sell it communicating something to buyers. And that has to be coordinated uh, with the media that you use. This approach is termed integrated marketing communications. By the way, that's the name of the chapter that he's quoting from. Just as communication is important in building, says Kotler, and maintaining any kind of relationship, communication is a critical element in a company's effort to build a profitable customer relationship. So yes, 
That is product marketing is a a contribution to integrated marketing communication. So is advertising. So is public relations. And so we would argue is content marketing because as Kotler also then goes on to describe is how the marketing landscape is actually changing and new services are coming in to address this profitability of the customer relationship. So if you're going to read and quote Kotler, quote him all the way. And then he goes on to basically follow, as I mentioned, the sort of sad recipe that has come before, which is misdefining content marketing and basically saying, it says, you know, all, every, everything is content, thus everything is content marketing. And he goes on to say that content is the real problem here, that the word content is the problem. He says, you know, it's a catch-all term, you know, the content of a wine glass, the content of a university class. It's all a catch term, he says. And so I absolutely agree with that. But then so is the word direct, as in direct marketing. Direct means I'm going to direct you to do something. I directed a play. I'm conversing with you directly. It means so many things. Ah, direct marketing is now meaningless. Product marketing, there's the word product. Product, which is it? Is it a product that we produce or sell, or is it the result of anything we do, like a waste product or any result of any action, the product of his first marriage? Or is it when we multiply quantities together, you know, multiplication tables, the product? Ah, product marketing is now meaningless. And then he goes on into the four P's because that really needs to be brought up again because we haven't learned enough about our four P's in marketing. And then he says what we really need to fix is the promotion mix. He says, and I'm quoting again here, we need to fix the promotion mix because really promotion has always been the part of the creation of a message, the insertion of that message into a piece of collateral, and the transmission of that collateral over a channel to an audience. And I say, great, 1987 called and they want their marketing strategy back. You go and do that. Enjoy yourself. (laughs) And so at the end here, really, the whole point of this, I got to the end and I'm like, I guess he's quibbling and bothered by the fact that there's something called content marketing. And as we have said forever, we kind of don't care what you call it. There is a different approach here. Using owned media to produce a result in an audience is different than advertising. It just is. There is a different approach here of using content differently, whether that's words or movies or pictures or events. There is creating an experience for a customer that is separate and discreet from our product or service and that adds value to that customer. It is part of the integrated marketing communication strategy. We've never said that it wasn't, but it is a different approach. Call it whatever you like. Just don't say it doesn't exist. End of my rant. Sorry. I went a little long there. I, I, you don't have to apologize. Uh, you said that very well. And I, and as we talked about before the show, I just can't comment on any of these anymore because i think it's silly um i yeah you're right i don't care what i mean for a lot of people wonder why we actually chose to use content marketing you know the reason why we chose content marketing because that's the one phrase that cmos actually lifted their heads up off their desk and paid attention to None of the other branded content, they didn't care. Custom publishing didn't care. Custom media, custom content didn't care. Those are all snoozers to them. You know what they did? They reached up, they looked up and said, content marketing, what's that? That That's a little bit intriguing. That's why we use content marketing. We don't care. But the approach is what we care about. It just happens. That's That's right. That's the term we're using. If you got a better one and all the CMOs around the world are using something different, we would switch our name probably. Well, or not, right? The whole point being, if if you if you can define the approach correctly, right? In other words, if you can look at and and if you just do any level of research into what we do, 
And he lost me basically when he said that people going to intelligent content conference and people going to the content marketing conference in Las Vegas are going for the same reason. It's like, if you just even go to the if website just for intelligent content, you, you realize that it's not about content marketing. It's about content strategy, but that's a whole different thing. But even if you just did this, the, the sort of shallow pass through of what we write about and talk about in any of our books or the blog or anything, you'll understand that what we're talking about here is an approach of using owned media to build an audience and build a relationship with that audience to affect a behavior in our, you know, on our, in our favor. And if you want to call that media marketing, great. If you want to call it custom publishing, great. If you want to call it chicken, I don't care. Just do it. Just understand that it's different than promotional persuasive advertising, and it's part of the integrated marketing communications mix. It's just, it is. It's, it's there. It does exist. It does actually exist. I've seen it with my own eyes. And so beyond that, kind of don't care. You know, it kind of, kind of tastes like chicken to me. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. kind of tastes like chicken. Very well said. Um well, there so, you go. So, no, that's good. It's good. Uh, I'm sure we'll get some kind of snarky comment back from that one, <laughs> and uh, we would expect <laughs> nothing less. Um, yes. So, you know, I've got um, – I don't know what this is, uh, This is Robert, but I, I, it's just intriguing to me, and I wanted to share it with you and our audience. Uh, my good friend Carl Sakis, uh, who's with uh, Sakis & Company, and he's part of the wonderful team that put together the High Five Conference that I was at in Raleigh a few weeks back. Um, he's uh, one of the leadership at the AMA Triangle there in, in Raleigh, North Carolina. And he sent me a note. He was actually talking about it, and then he sent me, me the link to this book called Charlatan, which I know you've heard of before, but you said you hadn't had a chance to read yet. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. So it's by Pope Brock. And I'm just getting into it. It's super interesting, but it's so far it's basically not giving anything away, but it's about a fake doctor, if you will, sort of using all the tools and tricks that you would use in order to get people to buy things that they shouldn't buy. So this is just really in the early portion of the book. I wanted to read this passage and then just give you a take on it. So, so here we go. So it says, still... There has probably never been a more quack-prone and quack-infested country than the United States. Flocking west with the pioneers, <laughs> they struck in one town, vanished to the next, and taught their tricks to others. Dupes were as common as passenger pigeons. Many Americans view, viewed hospitals, sometimes with justice, as tricked-up funeral homes and doctors as crooks who had a financial stake in keeping them sick. But quacks weren't just accepted, they were joyously embraced, thanks to a perverse seam in the American mind stretching back almost to the dawn of the Republic. And I got one more paragraph to read, and then I'll give you my take here. It first appeared in the early, in the early 19th century, in the heady days of Jacksonian democracy, that delirious celebration of the ordinary, the nation's elite, preachers, doctors, lawyers, were overthrown, at least mentally, with an abandon reminiscent of the French Revolution. Suddenly, to be educated was to be despised. Now when it came to physi physicians, Americans not only tolerated but demanded incompetence. So, wow. Isn't that something? So high was the common man exalted that state governments, all but three, actually repealed licensing requirements for doctors. In mid-century uh, mid educator Lemuel Shattuck 
asked by the Massachusetts legislator to conduct a sanitary survey of that state, reported back, anyone, male or female, learned or ignorant, an honest man or naive, can assume the name of physician and practice upon anyone to cure or to kill as either may happen without accountability. It's a free country. Oh, my God. So the the reason why I wanted to read that, I, I read that like five times, Robert, because... And I'm not, this is not political, folks. We see a lot of these things happening right now in the United States and around the world, mind you. Some things that just make absolutely no sense. And the reason why I wanted to bring it up on the show and why it interested me is I, I think this is where an opportunity is. I think that people, this is a short term thing where uh, people are buying into some things that maybe they shouldn't buy into. And I think that right now, if you are a brand, if you are a publisher, there's an opportunity to build trust with people that are really searching for trust. They really want to believe in something. And I think that what we're going through in a lot of cases right now is in in many cases temporary. And we're going to come back to, and it's history repeats itself, right? It absolutely. So we, it, this has already happened in a lot of ways. And I see the um, the environmental, some of the environmental issues, and this is a, and I'm not an environmentalist by any means, but there's some, uh, the, the great lake, you know, Lake Erie, right on Cleveland. We had anybody that knows the history of Cleveland, Ohio, there has been some significant things that have happened to that lake because of pollution. And there are some people now that are trying to remove all those things that we've done to improve the lake because they feel it's not necessary anymore and pollution's not an issue and those types of things. That's the, that's the kind of things that bothers me where we're, we're sort of going back and we haven't learned our lesson or there's some people that, that just are, are ignoring it uh, and, and regulation is just bad. Any regulation is bad. And I think we're getting into that little bit of a rut. And I think that this creates an opportunity for people who are passionate about a certain topic and especially brands that are passionate about a certain topic that you can actually um, take advantage and do something um, incredibly productive. So that's my take on it. That's I, I just thought that was super interesting to read that. And that's I read so it and it's like, wow, this is exactly – in some cases, this is going on right now. So here it is. Well uh, – Amazing and so fascinating. I mean, I've now written that book down. I'm totally going and downloading it as soon as see what I did there. I'm going to download the book now. Anyway. That's all <laughs> I was actually thing. holding the print book in my hand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so tell me quickly what the time frame was of this when you said this sort of like decrease or the sort of um, um, you know the it, every man rise and sort of the the quackery sort of yeah, idea. Yeah, this one. Early 19th century, and then it was in the days around Andrew Jackson's presidency. So that would have been the early, mid, mid, sort of 1820s? Is that, am I getting the right yeah, timeline? I, I right want to get the exact date and see when Andrew Jackson was president, but get that yeah. there. So, but yeah, I don't. Okay. Presidency. Well, because, yeah. so, I mean, so, and you will attest. Yeah, he was, yeah, it was not. the early, early 1800s. So he was president from. March 4th, 1829 to March 4th, 1837. So okay. there you go. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, there you have it. So, okay, so this, and, and again, you're going to attest here, we did not talk about this before because I wanted to surprise you with the, this old marketing example 
this week. Okay. Um, and it's maybe my favorite, this old marketing example, maybe ever, but certainly it's my favorite in a long time that I just stumbled upon. And it's like when you stumble upon this large vein of gold and you just go, oh my God, this is amazing. So, so this is, so, so, and you're just going to see how it fits together so well with what you just said. And we did not plan this, which is just magical, actually interesting. So here's a, so this is Abbott Laboratories. So you know Abbott Laboratories, yes? The giant pharmaceutical company. So Abbott Laboratories has been around for a long time, since the time we're talking about here, um, and made, pharmaceuticals. Um, and Dr. Abbott sort of made his, you know, life. By the way, if there's anybody from Abbott Laboratories listening or know anybody from Abbott Laboratories, this if they don't do something out of this, they're, they're crazy. So what happened was in the, uh, in the early 30s, um, basically coming out of uh, what they say was basically a very high distrust. So Abbott Laboratories was part of this sort of quackery and hucksterism that had been, and there had generated this huge distrust in the pharmaceutical industry. Basically any anything that you would buy that was medicinal had a huge distrust issue to it. And they got caught up in that a little bit. And so um, basically there was a Food and Drug Act that was that was created in 1906, um, and basically had really taken, you know, this was sort of the pinnacle of this, this distrust of the, you know, of all of these things that were going on. And there were all these acts that were, that were created. And Abbott was caught up in the middle of this and decided that they needed to do a rebrand, a full rebranding, recommunication, remarketing of their entire, um, their entire, uh, what they did. And they got a new president, uh, a new president who wanted to do something completely new. And his name was uh, DeWitt Clough, Clough, C-L-O-U-G-H. And he decided that he was going to launch publications. And the reason that he was going to launch publications as a means to get to doctors um, and ultimately consumers, but mostly doctors and hospitals, was because at that time, there was such a high distrust of pharmaceuticals that the advertising that would appear in newspapers and generally wherever they would put advertising was completely distrusted. There was, there was no trust in it at all. And so the other thing was it was really limited because of the, uh, the acts and the government acts that had come out. This ad space was really controlled and regulated highly. And so it was basically really hard to get ad space. And secondly, it was really distrusted. So there was no value in it. So he basically repivoted the entire marketing strategy and launched three publications. One called uh, the Alkaloid, uh, the, the American Journal of Clinical Medicine, one called the Alkaloidal Clinic. And the one that I really want to talk about was a magazine called What's New. And the magazine that's What's New ran from 1935 to 1945. And what the magazine was, was that they decided that what they would do is, this is just from 1935, so remember, we're right in the height of uh, uh, and the beginnings of, of World War II. So they decided that what they would do with what's new is to fund, basically, great artists. And these artists would do paintings, original paintings that would basically be supporting the war effort. And they would provide a showcase for all of these wonderful artists to provide and designers, poster designers and painters and all of these, a wonderful platform for them to showcase all this art. And they would send it to doctors and hospitals with the idea that these doctors would appreciate the intellectual and artistic expression of all of these wonderful images um, that they that they were creating. And there would be articles about the painter and the artist and articles about the painting itself and what was going on. And it was basically a way to subsidize all these artists to create all this wonderful art um, to put out. 
as they say in this this paper that we'll link to here, the primary motivation that was informing Abbott's decision to promote the company through this publication rather than sort of uh, medical agency journals like Journal of the AMA and those kinds of things basically was because of the paucity of ads, basically the, the, the lack of ad space in all of these mechanisms and because it didn't create any trust with the doctors that would be using the medicines. So their whole idea was to create trust by creating a content platform with these audiences, with the brand, and then they would trust the other stuff that they were putting out through the other journals, which was all thought leadership um, and sort of their approach to it. And when they positioned this, they created the entire magazine. So it's a big oversized magazine like Life Magazine. And in fact, Life Magazine, what we know today is Life Magazine, got the idea for how it would position itself. In other words, a very oversized, photographic, heavy magazine from the What's New magazine. It basically took its inspiration from What's New and Abbott Laboratories for its own formation. And basically, they continued for 10 years producing this magazine, producing it only for doctors and hospitals and uh, leaders in the medical community to really drive the home the idea that Abbott Laboratories was really focused on sophisticated, trustworthy content and really focused on emerging these new artists as a platform of fine art and supporting the war effort um, as they did it. The magazine continued into the 50s. After the war was finished, they continued the magazine into the 50s and basically then sort of folded sometime in the mid-50s. I couldn't find the exact date when it folded, but they produced it for almost 15 years and really supported a bunch of artists, created trust with a new brand, and it was basically driving those doctors to read the other things that they were producing, which was the Alkaloidal Journal and the other thing, which was basically a, a thought leadership journal for them to produce you know, all the new developments that were going on in medicine. So, I mean, just an amazing where, example of where, this Where did marketing. you find this? I found this. this what we're going to link to, this is going to freak this kid out, I'm sure. This was a term paper that this guy wrote basically it's a, and it's much longer the whole thing is basically the journey of Abbott's vision of rebranding itself during the early 1900s and into the war effort and it's a it, you know it's 300 pages it's a book really that he's written here and I'm guessing it's his thesis and I found it just because I was, you know, when I, as I do on, on this is what I do with my weekends is I go and look for <laughs> weird stories like this. I found this thing and read the whole paper and the paper was amazing. Um, you know, much of it has nothing to do with what we talk about, but it was basically about how Abbott Laboratories rebranded their entire business by focusing in on these three journals and publications that they created. They reformatted their entire marketing strategy around these publications. It's fascinating. That fascinating. Is, that is fascinating. Yeah. Let's yeah. let's get let's give his term paper a little bit of love. That's what we yeah, that's he's what gonna we see all these links to it and go, what the <laughs> hell? What who was interested in this? Right. That's awesome. Anyway, so, so what, what about you? Oh, you travel this week? Uh, no, I'm here. I'm here this week. Uh, next week, oh, you are. I'm at uh, Adobe Summit and uh, Social oh, Media right. Marketing World is next week. Yeah, that's right. I lost on, my invite uh, to Adobe Summit. Yeah, I guess. Well, uh, you, or maybe I never got one. Maybe I never got an invite from it. Yeah, that's that's what it is. Yeah, Adobe. You never invited. How many anyone. years? Oh. Ha, how many years have you presented at Adobe Summit? A lot. Yes. I've been there a lot. This yeah, is my I've first year. Yeah. yeah, they basically just yeah. said. Look at we, Robert. I mean, how many years in a row is Robert going to speak there? So they went yeah. to Sloppy Seconds, and here I am. No, so, no, you didn't just say that. Okay, all right, moving along. Then yeah, what are you, you doing this week? 
Um, well, I am, I'm home. I'm home again this week, um, putting some of the finishing touches on our wonderful book, um, which we are getting ready to wrap, which is yeah. so exciting. Um, and then, quite honestly, I'm neck deep in ICC, Internet, uh, Intelligent Content Conference, um, getting the keynote ready, getting my workshop final tuned, um, getting ready to interview Fran Leibowitz. Um, so all of that will be where I'm spending the majority of my week this week, and plus doing all my usual client work and all that stuff too. All right. Sound, sounds good. Yeah, I won't, I'll be seeing you in a couple of weeks, so looking forward to it. Yes, you will. Yeah, it's going to be good. Vegas, baby, Vegas. There and you that go. is it. For us, Joe Polizzi, this is Robert Rose. We are signing off. And if you like this episode, number 174, won't you leave us a kind review on iTunes? I know a couple of you did last week, and I got to thank you personally on Twitter for that, so thank you. Um, We hope you'll consider doing that and leaving us those wonderful reviews. Or if you haven't yet, consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher.com or your favorite podcatcher. And if you leave us those reviews or if you subscribe, let us know. We want to thank you personally. And we want your story ideas for this week, of course. Thank you for those. And always, story ideas, story ideas, story ideas. Tweet us up, won't you? Hashtag us up at the This Old Marketing on Twitter. Or you can send an email, thisoldmarketing at contentinstitute.com. All the links we talked about today will be available in the show notes that we publish on Monday night. And, of course, available in their full Technicolor glory on thisoldmarketing.com on Saturdays. Until next week, everybody, remember, it's your story to tell. Tell it well. We'll see you next week on This Old Marketing. is part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.